Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. COVID-19 cases are dropping statewide and action at the legislature is ramping up. But it wouldn't be a legislative session without a little infighting. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, House Assistant Majority Leader Jason Monks and Senate Minority Leader Michelle Stennett give me their take on tax proposals in the legislature. Then James Dawson of Boise State Public Radio updates us on a bill to set a higher bar for voter initiatives. Finally, Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press gives us a rundown on a contentious week. But first, a COVID-19 update. As the state's positivity rate has dropped to 5.8%, the lowest Idaho has seen since June, the Central District Health Board voted unanimously on Friday to remove the health orders mandating that masks be worn in public in Ada and Valley counties. That mandate turns into an advisory for the residents of Ada, Valley, Boise, and Elmore counties. Earlier this month, Eastern Idaho Public Health District also lifted mask mandates in Bonneville, Custer, and Jefferson counties. Some cities, including Boise and Pocatello, have implemented mask mandates in city limits that remain in effect. This comes as the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare has confirmed the arrival of the so-called South Africa variant of COVID-19 in the state, and Central District Health wastewater testing shows low levels of the UK and California variants in Ada County. Meanwhile, lawmakers still have their eye on the governor's powers during an emergency declaration. On Tuesday, the House passed a bill that limits what a governor can do during future declarations and would revert any rule changes related to that declaration after 60 days. But this legislation clarifies that you can't change laws. That's the legislator's prerogative. We think that it should maintain here. That's what the legislature is designed for. I think uh, if you look back to August when we had our special session there, we did that very thing. So I think that um, evidence that we can get the job done if necessary, but again, that's the purview of the legislature. The last thing that this legislation does is it, it, it protects these constitutional rights that we have. And I hesitate even saying that because in my opinion, an emergency does not negate your constitutional rights. Um, there's a reason that that, that this has been lodged in executive power uh, because it's, it's really hard for 105 people to come together in a, in a truly urgent situation and come up with a direction uh, to, to act in that moment. What if the governor was uh, the governor from Florida? I kind of like the way things are going over there, but you may not. Or for some of the rest of us, what if it was a governor from Michigan or good heavenly days where I used to live in California, Gavin Newsom? or rather the governor from California, or what if it was, oh my heck, the governor from New York. We would want to have a means of redressing some of these uh, um, things that we perceive as being incorrect and unjustly put upon us. 
House Assistant Majority Leader Jason Monks, the sponsor of the bill, says the legislation wouldn't affect federal FEMA funding. But emergency powers aren't the only thing on the legislature's mind this year. This week, both Representative Monks and Senate Minority Leader Michelle Stennett joined me to discuss tax proposals from their caucuses, as well as their thoughts on other proposals. Can you walk me through the majority party leadership's tax cut proposal? So there uh, was one introduced recently, and, and I'm, I'm going to leave out a lot of the details, but the basics of it was that it was going to reduce the income tax bracket down to 6.5, and it was going to reduce sales tax on all items down to 5.3. So from 6% from down to 5.3. Um, and that was about a $280 million tax relief package to the citizens of Idaho. Um, I think it's a great package. I don't know if that's the package that will end up across the finish line when we're all done. I think there's going to be another bill that will be introduced next week that had more of the governor's recommendations with that one, I, I believe. Um, don't hold me to that, though. I'm not the chairman of, of that committee, and I'm not even on that committee, but that was my understanding that there will be another package that will be kind of introduced. And so you'll see a few of these packages introduced, and we will ultimately a land on, on something, uh, I think it would be a failure of this, legislat this legislative session if we didn't provide some kind of tax relief to our citizens. Um, but I'm, I'm confident that we will do something. Let's talk a little bit more about the property tax proposals. Can you walk me through the specifics of it and how much it would cost? There are, there's more than one, and so I speak to specific numbers. I do know that I disagree with that House bill that just came out that's talking about, prop, uh, about tax relief because uh, we are sitting on all told almost a billion dollars worth of assets uh, and revenues that we should be putting towards infrastructure, uh, highway systems, healthcare, schools, uh, higher education, and they're talking about giving out tax relief instead of uh, property tax relief, just tax breaks. And that really is not is going to actually increase taxes to, uh, to people on, who earn under $50,000 a year and to many uh, families, larger families. And uh, I just think if we have to be talking more strategically about where we give that relief. And so some of that would be uh, grocery tax relief, uh, like I said, the homeowners and exemption and um, circuit breaker. And we'd have to come at it in these is small bites because one thing is not going to give protection or relief to people. It'll be a, a cluster of, of ideas and, and legislation that help um, have the most impact for the greatest amount of Idahoans. Some House Republicans want to see the grocery tax entirely eliminated. If that hits the House floor, would you support it? I will support any tax relief package that hits the floor. Um, I don't think that's the best response, actually. Um, but, you know, would I support it? Absolutely. Um, if we raised the grocery tax credit, would I support that? Absolutely. Um, I actually think that's a better approach. Um, than just removing it altogether. The research clearly shows that for the elderly and for families that have um, three, four, and more kids, that by eliminating that grocery tax credit and taking the tax off of groceries, that will be a tax increase to those segments of the population. So you will see that that will negatively affect you know the elderly and larger families. And so I'm I'm 
not overly excited about that particular approach, but if we could do a removal of the tax on groceries and you know, include some other relief for those other uh, demographics of society, I guess, then I would be supportive of it. But I think there's a better path forward. Some House Republicans want to see that grocery tax eliminated. So if that hit the Senate floor, would you support it? It depends on the language. We have to understand that sales are, uh, uh, both sales tax actually and uh, grocery taxes are paid by everybody who comes to the state and helps us build our, our revenue base to, to provide services. So it isn't just the local people, it's anybody who's traveling through and, and everybody pays peace into our sales tax or, or our grocery tax. I do want to try to give relief to those that have the lower economics um, to come up with a formula where we give some relief. There's talk probably not giving total relief um, just because again that is a is a large price tag for right now and um, so it would really depend on the language. I would do something that's modified and that's probably not wholesale. Um, I think right now we need to be careful about how we um, manage the, the resources that we have acquired uh, so that we know what to put it into. Again, I speak to infrastructure and that sort of thing as we go, move out of the pandemic. We're going to have to make sure that we understand uh, uh, what that new future looks like and plan. And I like to plan more long term and not from one election cycle to the next. So, uh, we'll, but I, I, I would entertain it. I just would have to see the language of the bill. Also this week, House Judiciary and Rules Chairman Greg Cheney and Representative Brooke Green introduced legislation that would prohibit targeted picketing at individuals' private homes. The legislation came after multiple incidents in the past year at public officials' residences. At a Wednesday hearing on the bill, some of those protesters made it clear they were unhappy with the proposal. I went to a targeted protest and I freaking hated it. It sucked, man. I, I hated it. But I felt I have no option. I'm out of options. Where do I go? I mean, that's how we got here. So now we're going to make another law that says, shut up, people. Shut up. One thing I have to say is if you guys would have left our houses alone, we would have left your houses alone as well. We have the right to, peaceab to peaceably protest whenever we deem it necessary. Maybe you shouldn't be writing bills that the people don't agree with, and we wouldn't need to come to your homes. Hours after that Wednesday hearing, protesters came to Representative Cheney's Caldwell home. According to Cheney, one hung a stuffed animal in effigy. The hearing on that bill continued Friday afternoon. We'll have more later in the show. During my interviews with Senator Stennett and Representative Monks this week, I asked their thoughts on the legislature's role in public discourse. Over the past few months, we've seen heated protests at government buildings in Idaho and in some cases, individuals' private homes. Should the legislature have more of a role in toning down the rhetoric or, or turning down the temperature, setting that tone for public discourse? I think elected officials do have a role in that process as far as when we, we incite inflammatory you know, language, um, and, I, and I wish that we, as a political society, you know, not just in Idaho, but in the, in the entire United States, would, would try to come to better and realize that most people have the best of intentions. Now, we, we obviously differ on where we think that we should end up um, as far as our ultimate goal, and that's okay. That's good and that's healthy. 
Um, so I would I would hope that we would be a little bit you know kinder, a little bit uh, more patient and understanding that that people I think just want the best. Um, and you know as far as the citizens protests, I, I absolutely encourage them uh, to do so. That's that's one of the first. Uh, First Amendments there in our Constitution talks about the right to, to you know, assemble uh, for redress with your government, and that's important. We need to hear that when the citizens are upset enough about something, you know, that's one of their rights, and and they need to do that. When they cross the line of making it violent, then that's obviously, um, you know, that's a problem for me. Um, so peaceful, peaceful, just you know, demonstrations and protests, I absolutely encourage, and um, and in fact, I like it. I think it's healthy. Do you think those protests should be occurring at individuals' homes? I would hope that people wouldn't do that. I think that's um, inappropriate. I think it's uh, disrespectful not to not only to that individual but also to the neighbors. And you have to realize that whether the politician has kids, the neighbors will have kids. That's just completely out of line um, in my world. I, I don't think you should do it. However, I don't think necessarily that we as a government should prohibit that either. Um, you know, there is public space and, you know, on a, a you know, roads or, or sidewalks, as long as it's not on my personal property, people should be free to be able to do that. Um, so it's a, I think it's a fine line that we've got to make sure that we, we uh, address. And if our current laws are not sufficient for trespassing and for disturbing the peace, then that that's what we should look at, I think, in my opinion. Um, but I, I hesitate to, you know, say blanket, you can't protest out in front of my house. Um, I don't know how that works, you know, in a downtown scenario, if I'm staying in a in an apartment complex right next to the Capitol and, and you know, what, where's the line on that? Obviously, it's different for, you know, somebody living in the rural communities versus in an urban environment. But I think we have to be very careful when we start in looking at any infringements on our you know, First Amendment rights. I personally believe that the legislature sets the example for the civility and the protocols that we wish to see around us and the people, uh, the example we give to the people who we represent. Um, I don't think you get very far uh, being um, violent or destructive. People do have a right to demonstrate and have a say, but if they trespass, then we have very strong trespass laws and they should be uh, understand that there is a public space and a private space. Um, I think that uh, if you end up being so incredibly angry and uh, too forceful, it tends not to help the dialogue or coming to some kind of um, agreement about how we can do better jobs going forward. I really strongly believe in a respectful civil process. I think the legislature should be setting that example. To hear more about all the topics we covered, you'll find my entire conversations with Representative Monks and Senator Stennett on the Idaho Reports YouTube channel. You'll find the link at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. And while you're there, hit subscribe. That hearing wasn't the only controversial issue in front of lawmakers this week. The Senate State Affairs Committee considered legislation that would make it harder to get a voter initiative on the general election ballot in Idaho. James Dawson of Boise State Public Radio has been following this issue closely and joined me on Friday to give us the rundown. Thanks so much for joining us. Can you walk us through the Senate voter initiative proposal? 
Sure. So this would simply make it so uh, campaigns who are trying to put an, in, an initiative on the ballot would have to get a certain number of signatures from each of Idaho's 35 legislative districts. And right now, uh, they have to get uh, a certain number of signatures in 18 of the 35 legislative districts. So um, while the total number of signatures overall doesn't change, the geographic distribution uh, is completely different and it would require these campaigns to have people uh, going into each, again, each of these 35 legislative districts across the state to get a certain number of signatures. What's the logic from the bill sponsors? Well, you know, they say that uh, right now you can get a, a, a whole lot of uh, signatures and uh, most of it, uh, most of an initiative put on the ballot in just a few counties uh, across the state. And they say that uh, rural Idaho needs more representation. Um, but as we heard this morning from people like uh, retired Boise State political science professor Gary Moncrief, um, rural Idaho has a whole lot of representation in the state house. A, a huge number of elected um, officials are from rural areas, and not to mention that their professions are largely, uh, you know, farming, ranching, uh, you know, these agrarian type of um, uh, professions that uh, they say need a bigger voice in the state house when there already is a, a huge influence there. You know, this sounds pretty familiar to the conversation that we had two years ago when a similar proposal was in front of the legislature and got vetoed by Governor Little. How is this one different? This one is uh, different in the fact that it's not kind of like a, uh, you know, an assault from all angles uh, as those two bills were. I mean, that would have uh, increased the total number of districts that would have been needed to qualify. It would have upped the signature um, requirements. It would have also uh, lessened the time limit uh, that campaigns have. Right now they have 18 months and that would have taken it down to six months if I remember correctly. So, um, you know, Governor Brad Little, like you, like you mentioned, said that uh, he worried that it would have been unconstitutional. And he said he reluctantly vetoed it, uh, quote, um, because he didn't want the Ninth Circuit deciding what Idaho's uh, initiative process would have been. You know, there were a whole lot of people who testified against this, many of whom have either been involved in past initiatives or have their eye on potential future ones. What were their concerns? It's true. Uh, and it was largely what we heard two years ago, too, was, uh, you know, they viewed this as kind of retribution for uh, Medicaid expansion passing on the ballot by almost 61% in 2018. Uh, and there's some truth, historical truth to that. Uh, you know, for the past several decades, we've seen uh, the legislature pass new laws and restrictions on the initiative process when, uh, for example, term limits in the 90s passed. And, uh, uh, you know, they, they didn't like that and they reversed it uh, in the early 2000s. But um, so there was that. Uh, you also had, like you mentioned, um, the medical marijuana folks uh, who are trying to get an initiative on the ballot, uh, you know, they are saying, well, this is directly aimed at us too. Uh, and there's some truth to that when you have the constitutional amendment from Senator Scott Grow uh, that just passed the Senate, I believe earlier this month, uh, that would make under the constitution, uh, it impossible for a citizen's initiative to get any kind of uh, medical marijuana on the ballot. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that, that how this effort plays into other conversations that the legislature 
is having right now. The obvious one is that medical marijuana initiative. Um, but but there's also a legislative effort to try and get medical marijuana passed in the state as well, although very restrictive. Um, I, I'm curious how this compares to other states that allow voter initiatives. Yeah, and it's difficult to compare uh, apples to oranges. Um, I would say that when I've talked to experts across the country, um, they certainly say that Idaho is one of the more restrictive um, in the country. Uh, for example, we require 6%, this is really wonky, but we require 6% of the number of registered voters in the last general election. And only one other state is basing the signature requirement on the number of registered voters, uh, whether or not they actually cast a ballot. And that's the big thing. Most states either require um, the signature requirement to be uh, based on the number of votes cast in a presidential or gubernatorial um, election. Uh, if this were to pass, Idaho would be the only state in the country that would require um, these signatures come from each of the legislative districts. There are two states that require signatures coming from all congressional districts, uh, but those are huge. I mean, congressional districts are vast. Uh, Idaho only has two uh, as opposed to 35. You know, we're talking about 6% of registered voters in a legislative district. Of course, there are big disparities uh, between population sizes as Idaho, some parts of Idaho have grown and others have shrunk just in the last 10 years. There are also disparities in the number of registered voters, but we have redistricting coming up. How might that change the picture? Well, it's going to rebalance everything. Like you mentioned, uh, what, Legislative District 27, which off the top of my head, I can't remember where that is, but it, it has the fewest number of registered voters. There you go. I, I like that you have that memorized. Uh, so uh, Minicasha has just under 21,000 registered voters. And then, of course, the big one, District 14, Boise Suburbs, Eagle, uh, Meridian, and Star uh, has 49,000. Um, and I just looked at these this morning. So, I mean, we're talking about uh, 28,000 people difference right there. Uh, redistricting will rebalance that some, uh, but certainly the population growth in Idaho has not been anywhere close to equal uh, over the past 10 years. And so um, if this were to pass, then you would certainly see these more rural areas having far more of a voice in whether or not something gets on the ballot. All right, James Dawson, Boise State Public Radio, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Melissa. As if the bill's lawmakers are hearing weren't contentious enough, some legislators are upset about bills they aren't hearing. This week, a group of conservative House Republicans used a parliamentary procedure to grind floor proceedings to a halt in an attempt to let leadership know how unhappy they were. I'd like to request unanimous consent to dispense with further reading of House Bill 123. There's been an objection from the good lady from District 11. The clerk may read. In the House of Representatives, House Bill 123 by... The good lady from District 8 has objected. The good lady from District 35 has objected. Disability is rated at 100% or higher. Mr. Speaker, I request unanimous consent to cease with further reading of the bill. The good gentleman from District 34 has objected. The clerk may continue. Permanent and total. B. The board may... And joining us today to discuss that and other issues is Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press. Betsy, are these protests working? Are those bills that the conservative lawmakers are upset aren't getting hearings? Are they going to get hearings now? It's 
kind of hard to tell um, as far as what exactly it is that they want. Um, we have continued to hear a speech every day in the House from a member of the group, and they are continuing to call for a repeal of the governor's emergency order, which I think there's been a learning process in the legislature thus far this session that the repeal of the emergency declaration might not actually accomplish what they're after. Um, so I don't know if it's working or not. We did not see objections to reading bills today. Well, and I'll note that one of the ones that they decided not to object to was a bill that was 50 pages long. So uh, I, I imagine the clerks were probably relieved at that. Uh, I, I want to ask you, earlier in the show, we talked about the proposal from Representatives Cheney and Green about targeted picketing in front of private residences. Uh, Friday afternoon, House student rules had that vote. How did it go? The bill passed on an 11 to 4 vote. but only after one of the most reflective and thoughtful and heartfelt debates I have ever seen in a legislative committee. I believe every representative weighed in and talked about their concerns about why they were for or against the bill. It was really something to see. What were some of the concerns that came up? Because I know that it, we saw overwhelming opposition to this from the people who showed up to testify, um, and a few people who testified remotely, too. Um, but, but there were other concerns that were brought up by the lawmakers. There were, and there were also actually quite a few people who testified in favor of the bill, including Canyon County Sheriff Karen Donahue and a whole lot of others. Um, I think that there was divided feeling about this bill, and the concerns that the legislators were talking about ranged from the Constitution and wanting to follow the Constitution, the level of discourse in our society, how we accomplish our political goals, and how to accommodate protests. Um, and each led them to a slightly different conclusion. You know, we are about halfway through the length of a normal legislative session, right? And so far, we've had a handful of staffers test positive for COVID-19. And this week, uh, the first confirmed positives among lawmakers That's this right. legislative session. Yes. Can you give us that update? Two senators tested positive for COVID-19 this week. They are both out. Both have appointed substitutes to fill in for them, both former lawmakers. Um, and that did, did cause some other quarantining among um, legislators and staff, and it spiked the concerns once again. Um, daily testing is being made available to lawmakers, but there, is still, there are still large numbers of legislators who are not wearing masks and who are together in indoor spaces here. So if the virus is here, it may well yet spread more. That does bring us to six confirmed cases in the State House thus far during the legislative session. You know, that said, I have been watching committee hearings and floor sessions, and it looked like, at least at the beginning of the week, a few more senators than I've seen in the past seem to be wearing masks. Has this at all changed the conversation in the Senate about distancing, or, or is it the same that, well, this is a risk that we take? I have seen more senators wearing masks, particularly in committee hearings, which are the rooms in which they're in a small room, in a confined space, and it's particularly dangerous. Um, there are still a large number of House members who are not wearing masks, and there are still members of the public who are not wearing masks, and the legislative leadership has declined to in any way require those. And in fact, today, the um, Central District Health voted to make the Ada County and Valley County mask mandates just advisories. However, the city of Boise, of course, still has a requirement. 
Now, we have less than a minute left, but can you give us an update on how those two senators are doing? Senator Van Burtenshaw was released from the hospital yesterday, and his wife says he is feeling much better. He did have a rough go of it. Um, Senator Steve Baer um, had moderate symptoms. When I last talked to him, he was at home um, and just heartbroken about the idea that he had exposed other people. Um, and it's just a reminder that this virus strikes everyone differently um, and to a different extent, and that it is still here with us. We're so glad that they are doing better. Betsy Russell of the Idaho Press, thank you for joining us. And thank you for watching. Remember to check our website for more online exclusive content. We'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.